0: All right, all right. If you can begin making your way back to your seats, and as you do, grab your Bibles and head on over to Matthew chapter five. We are going to be doing a little bit of catch up from last week. I only got through half of what was originally planned last week, and then we're gonna we're gonna try to go forward. So um, perhaps a bit of an austere audacious task we have before us trying to cover about eight verses or so this morning. Uh, But what I want to do is I want to spend a fair amount of time recapping where we were last week because it sets the tone and the stage for where we go next. And here's really the big idea and here's I think how we can potentially begin to understand what Jesus is going to continue teaching In the context of what he said last week where he told everyone, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Now what is he talking about there? He's talking about the Old Testament law. He's talking about the some 613 commandments that were counted by rabbis and those who studied the Old Testament and and kind of found out all of the do not commands and they put them in a list and all of the do commands and they put them in a list and it ended up being a total of 613. Jesus said, I did not come to tell you that that was useless, that that was purposeless, that God somehow made a mistake. And what he gave to Moses and the Israelites, I have come to fulfill it. And so last week we turned our attention to these two questions. In what sense did Jesus fulfill the law? And then secondly, how do I as a follower of Jesus interact with the law? How do I as a follower of Jesus interact with the Old Testament? Is perhaps another way to ask that question. How do I, or what obligation do I have to those 613 commands? Are they still binding in my life? Well, let's just kind of recap briefly. In what sense did Jesus fulfill the law? Completely, perfectly, obediently, there was not a single command of him in the law that he did not perfectly obey and fulfill. Jesus also... Secondly, showed the law's true intent and goal. And so his perfect obedience becomes then what gets credited to my account when I place my faith and trust in Christ. So when Jesus is going to say, come Matthew 5.48, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. When he will say, as we'll look this morning in Matthew 5.20, your righteousness, your good deeds has to exceed those of the most good. Righteous people, you know, or you're not going to get into heaven, the only way that's possible is because of Him crediting us with His perfect obedience. And so that's what happens then when we place our faith and trust in Jesus. He takes my sin, I get His sinlessness. There's this twofold, two aspect transaction that happens when I place my faith and trust in Christ. So, in what sense did Jesus fulfill the law? Perfectly. Completely, showed the law's true intent. How do I, as a follower of Jesus, interact with the law? Well, I told you last week, I do not believe there is any of those 613 commandments that are still binding for the New Testament believer today. All of the laws that you read in the Old Testament, and yes, I intend to mean the the Ten Commandments as well, are not binding for us today. Now, nine of those 10 Ten Commandments get re-applied come the New Testament. So I am not telling you that you now have permission to go murder people. Or that lying somehow has become okay. That's not at all what I'm saying. And I'm not at all telling any of us that we need to somehow dismiss the Old Testament and act like it's un or irrelevant. No, it's incredibly relevant. And if we're going to understand what's going on in the New Testament, we got to understand the Old Testament. But if we're going to do this in the right way and apply the Scriptures faithfully across Genesis to Revelation, we have to be very clear about these things. Because we understand from Hebrews 10 that Jesus, as the perfect sacrifice, fulfilled completely all of what the priests and the Levites and the whole sacrificial aspect of the law intended to lead towards and point towards. Jesus, at one point in his ministry, Mark tells us in Mark 7, he declared all foods clean. And so we understand that there's now permission to eat bacon, where the Old Testament Jew was not able to eat pig. And so what do we do with the rest of those And I submit to you that there is not a single one of those 613 that is binding. But what you have in the New Testament, and this is what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, is he's introducing now what it looks like to follow him. The New Testament is very, very concerned, and following Christ today is very, very concerned with not just what our hands do, but with what is going on in our hearts It's not just an issue of checking a box. It's now an issue of the heart. And so we have to be really careful that we don't just simply pick and choose what Old Testament laws we want to keep and which ones we want to say no longer apply. Jesus obeyed perfectly and fulfilled the intent of the law. And then he died and was buried and rose again. And he pointed towards in everything that he did... The fulfillment of the law and how the law was aimed at him and what would be accomplished by him. And so believers today are under grace, not the law, as Paul writes in Romans six, fourteen. And so what do we do with that and how do we to make sense of that? Well, let's take a few examples, if we may, real briefly. Um, one of the examples I gave last week was from Leviticus 19. And I told you that I'm not your priest. And I didn't want any of your moldy stuff showing up in my doorstep this coming week. Because in Leviticus 13, it says if you've got an article of clothing or something that's moldy, take it to your priest and let him inspect it for seven days. And then he can declare whether or not it's clean or unclean. I told you I'm not your priest. I don't want your moldy stuff. Well, somebody sent me some moldy stuff this week. Well... I appreciate the humor of that. Glad you're listening. But that's one of the things that we would just have to go, well, that, no, that doesn't continue. The priesthood in that sense is completely fulfilled, and it's done away with. We have a high priest who's Jesus. He now sits at the right hand of the Father. There should be no priests anymore because we have the full and final high priest. Well, let's keep giving some other examples here. Paul in Romans 13, 9 and 10 says this. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to his neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. So we're not dismissing... And somehow now giving permission to covet and murder and steal and commit adultery. No. We're saying, look, there's now a deepening of what these look like. And Jesus is going to step through many of these in Matthew 5 as he begins to give details of how this gets applied. I mentioned last week that tithing is not a command that is given again in the New Testament. Tithing is an Old Testament command. Give your tithe, bring your tithe to the storehouse. Tithe means 10%. Often in today's church, we think of my, my tithe as my 10%. And, and many of us begin there, take our gross salary, we multiply it by .10, and all that that's what we give. Well, tithing's not a command that's reasserted come the New Testament. So the New Testament church should not ever be commanded to tithe because the scriptures don't command the New Testament church to tithe. Instead there is a deepening of that idea and that principle and now the issue becomes not just what my hands do but where my heart is. And so it's generosity. And I just a few minutes ago read from Second Corinthians chapter 9 on how we are to be Generous. There's no longer an amount attached to that. It's a matter of the heart. And so it's not just checking the box, did I give my 10%, it's was I generous? Well, that may mean more than 10%. It's an attitude all of a sudden. It's not just an action. And that's what we see consistently across The board. Let me give you another example from Romans in regards to food laws. Paul says this I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. What's he talking about? He's talking about animals. He's talking about what you eat. He's talking about what you drink. There were very specific animals that the Old Testament Israelite was not able to eat. And if he did so or touched, One of them, he became ritually unclean and had to be purified before he could go back to the temple courts. So Paul's saying, look, I'm convinced, persuaded in the Lord Jesus that no animal is unclean. But it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. What's happening here? For if your brother's grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. And he goes one step further. By what you eat, do not destroy the one whom Christ died. So there's this huge shift that has all of a sudden occurred. Where if my eating habits cause another brother or sister to be grieved, I need to say no. Even though there's no command Requiring that obedience of me. So in declaring all foods clean, bacon is now on the table. But if someone's offended by my eating of bacon, I choose for their sake to no longer eat bacon. That's what's going on here. It's not just something that I do with my hands all of a sudden. It's now a heart issue. Generosity and giving to the Lord becomes a heart issue. It becomes something now that I've got to do much, much harder work with. What I eat and what I drink becomes, in, quite frankly, a whole lot more intense than just did I stay away from pork? It's not have I offended a brother or sister by what I chose to eat? And the idea here would have been meat sacrificed ritualistically to idols. And the Apostle Paul returns to that very same idea in 1 Corinthians 8 where he again says much of the same thing. The idea now and the principle now becomes what does my neighbor need? And how can I love them? There's a deepening of the issue. It's not just what I do with my hands. It's not just my action. It's all of a sudden now my attitude, and that's what Jesus is going to continue to do through the whole next section of verses in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll see that this morning as we step back into Matthew 5 and look at what he has to say about anger and murder. It's not what my hands do, it's now where my heart's at. And in comparison to what the Pharisees understood and in comparison to even what the disciples understood, where they were at, obedience and following God now is way more intense than it ever was in their understanding of just keeping even 613 laws. Because the issue is now what's going on inside, not just what I do Outside. And we're going to see that time and time again. And so, as we get going and as we continue, I want to give you three different questions that that are questions we try to answer every Sunday morning where we open God's Word. I don't necessarily make them nearly as formal or put them on the screen each week for you, but this is what we're trying to do every time we open up the Scriptures. We're trying to understand, first of all, what did the author, and in this case it's Matthew recording the words of Jesus, intend for the original audience to understand? What was the first part? What, what did Matthew want in quoting Jesus those original disciples and readers to understand? And then what principles and truth can be understand today? And then how do we apply those principles to our Lives And so that's what we try to do every Sunday morning when we gather and we open God's word. And it gets a little tricky when we do it in the gospels because the disciples were still living under the law. Those 613 laws for these guys in Matthew 5 still applied. Jesus hadn't completed his work yet. He hadn't declared it is finished yet. So they still had to stay away from pork They still had to do all of these things. They still had to bring the tithe to the storehouse. But we're going to see even in what Jesus taught them that there is now principles and truths that he wanted them to understand that absolutely cross over and apply to us today. And so this is what we're going to be trying to do over the next several verses and as we continue to go throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So before we go any further, let's pray and then we'll... Get into verse 19. Like I said, we got to do a little catch up, pick up 19 and 20 from what we did not get to do last week. And then we're going to move forward and aim to get through 26 this morning as we think about what Jesus has to say regarding anger and murder. So would you join me? Let's pray. Father God, we pray for our time here in your word this morning. Pray that you would come and teach us. God, I pray that my words would be accurate to your word and that we would be able to understand what it is that you have said. God, help us to understand how these principles and truths that you are communicating in your word apply to our lives today. And so, God, would you give us ears to hear? Would you help us to very, very specifically see where and how this matters for us now? This isn't just information you shared 2,000 years ago that we're supposed to walk away with and go, oh, that was nice. No, your word is living and active. It's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correction, and for training. I pray that you would do that now. I pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Let's go pick up 19 and 20 together. Let's go back actually to 17. We'll just read 17 to 20. We'll spend a little bit of time in 19 and 20 then. And then we'll move forward to 21 from there. Jesus says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not in iota The kingdom of heaven. So let's step into 19 and 20 and try to understand what's going on here. In verse 19, Jesus gives a very clear statement about what it looks like to follow him. In verse 19, we're talking about and looking at what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so at the beginning of 19, the word therefore is there, indicating that he's summarizing now for us and applying for us. What he has just said in 17 and 18. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And not a iota and not a dot is going to pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so therefore, and in summary, here's what it looks to follow me. You are least if you relax even the least of the commandments. And you are great if you teach others to not relax any of them. The Pharisees had a way of understanding certain laws out of the list of 613 to be considered lesser laws and greater laws. And that's part of what Jesus is, is targeting here. And they prided themselves on being experts at following even all of the lesser laws. And so when Jesus gets into... Matthew 23 and gets after them for tithing on their mint and their cumin and all of their spice rack that's part of what's going on here that was a part of what was considered the lesser laws and they were making sure that they were even tithing on that now we've got some mint plants in our yard And those things grow like weeds. I don't know how you would actually make sure and count that you tithe 10% of your mint plant. It seems like every morning the thing multiplies. And maybe that's part of the point. Is that they were so detailed and exact in these lesser laws. That they were making sure that even the things that other people might go, Well, maybe not a big deal. They made a big deal. But here's Jesus telling us, this is what it looks like to follow me. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus had some strong words in Mark 10 for those who encouraged his little ones to sin. He said it would be better for him. If a millstone was tied around his neck and if he was dropped in the sea, it's the same idea here. It's the same idea. We get to, and as the New Testament church is built and planted and grows, the idea of false teachers takes center stage in many of the letters written to these churches. A couple years ago, we studied the book of Titus. It was written by Paul to Titus, who was a pastor at a church in Crete. And what was at stake was Titus was to appoint elders so that they would be able to protect the flock from false teachers. And he says there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, or we should say the Jewish party. They must be silenced. Since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. See, we, we don't have a, a, an allowance now come the New Testament after Jesus accomplished everything where it's all of a sudden okay to relax the commandments of Scripture. Like we don't go there and the false teachers in the local church that were teaching and relaxing these commandments have very, very strong things set against them. Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 has some incredibly strong things against them as well. Here's the big idea when we think about what it looks like to follow Jesus. We don't get to pick and choose what commandments we like and what commandments we don't like. Which ones we'll follow and which ones we won't. For the disciples who were still living under the Old Testament Mosaic Covenant, those 613 laws, Jesus was being very clear to them. There's no lesser or greater. You follow all of them. And whoever teaches anybody else to relax them will be the least. For us today, we can take that principle and that truth and understand it to be we don't get to pick and choose what God's Word says and which ones will keep and which ones we'll discard. And so when the New Testament very clearly walks through and talks about what it looks like to follow Jesus, there's a responsibility on our part to submit ourselves to Him and say, okay. To maybe say it a different way, we're not to be content with sinfulness, even a little. There should be a radical pursuit of holiness in our lives. And we've seen that even as Jesus walked through the Beatitudes in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are those who radically pursue holiness. That's the idea here in verse 19 that there isn't a compromise, there's a radical pursuit of obedience. In verse 20, Jesus then begins to walk through how one enters the kingdom of heaven. He begins with the word for, and he's transitioning. That word for is as if Jesus was to say, and another thing. I want to tell you something else. It's connected to what he has previously said, but it's not necessarily a summary or an application of what he said. He's taking it another step further. He has something else for And there in 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That word exceeds means to greatly or considerably exceed. So Jesus is telling them how to enter the kingdom of heaven or how to have and find eternal life. He said, Unless you guys are more holy than the most holiest people you know, who are tithing on their dill and their mint and their cumin, You guys aren't going to get there. We have him once again doing this two-fold aspect that the Sermon on the Mount does time and time again. It raises the bar, but then lets us know at the very same time, you're never going to meet it. Jesus is raising the bar and simultaneously telling us we're never going to reach it. And I would contend he's gracious for doing so because in the revealing of our inability to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect, it leads us back to the cross. It leads us to be those that are poor in spirit and not those who are trusting in themselves as the very first beatitude indicates. And so here Jesus is telling Them and us, what it looks like to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says it by way of contrast to make a very dramatic point. Guys, perfection's what's required. Take the holiest people that you know, who we learn later in the book of Matthew, that aren't that holy. They're just externally holy. They just look holy from the outside. Inside, they're full of dead man's bones and a hot mess you take them and you go be better than them which would have left every one of those listening to Jesus go stink i can't do that and if that's not enough by the time we get 28 verses later to Matthew 5:48 Jesus isn't going to pull any more punches and just says you have to be perfect as your heavenly father's perfect so if you think you can do that holiness thing well let me remind you that it's actually perfection perfection of God. That's the standard. Again, simultaneously raising the bar, calling us to a higher standard, but then letting us know you're never going to meet it. And he's gracious for doing so because it leads us back to himself. So let's then see how Jesus begins to apply these things as we then look at what he has to say in verses 21 to 26 in regards to anger and Murder. And really, here's the big idea of that passage, is that God is far more concerned with our interpersonal relationships than we realize. God is far more concerned with our interpersonal relationships than we realize. Realize, And what he has to say in 21 to 26 is incredibly intense when you begin to think about the contrast that he is going to be making. So let's just read those verses in their totality. And then we'll go back and we'll begin stepping through them. Verse 21. You have heard it said, to those of old you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Come to term quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus is very concerned with our interpersonal relationships. And he gives us three different ways in these verses that we are going to see this. The first is in regards to my attitude. The second is in regards to an offense that I may have committed. And the third is in regards to a debt that I may owe. And once again, the issue here is not just what I do with my hands, but where is my heart? And that's where we begin in verse 21. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. That was commandment number six. Thou shall not murder. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment The first thing that we see in verses 21 to 22 is that Jesus takes on our heart and our attitudes even down to the very words we say. No longer is the question, did you actually take someone's life? It's now, what's happening on the inside? Where's my heart at? Not just where's my hands and what have they done? It's where's My heart? Where's my attitude? What's the intent? I say to you, verse 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. Do you see there that the actual act of murder and being angry with your brother has the same consequences? You have heard it said that whoever murders, or you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The very same penalty. Taking someone's life and being angry with them. God's far more concerned with our interpersonal relationships than we realize. And he's saying, look, it's not just what your hands do, it's what your hearts feel. I want this. And we learn... From other places where Jesus taught that it's actually out of the heart that actions follow. And So if we can get hearts transformed, if minds can be renewed, actions follow. No longer the question is simply, did I take his life? It's did I want to? John says in 1 John, I believe it's chapter 3... Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. There's no act even in play there. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. That's what Jesus is saying here. The idea there to be angry, that word, is is to be full of angry. It's to be furious. It's not just our external actions. It's our hearts, and it's our attitudes. And then Jesus continues as he's looking at not just what we do, maybe not just what our hearts say, not just what our hands do, but what comes out of our mouths. And whoever says, continuing there, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That word insult, it's a weird word. It's really difficult to translate. There's not a great way to correlate well it's this set of words and not that set of words that there's no good way to understand that the idea behind there is again a heart issue i don't think jesus is giving us here a list of specific words not to say i think he's trying to reveal matters and issues of the heart and so where he says this Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. He's indicating that, again, it's not just what our hands do. It's not just the act of murder that the issue is. It's what our hearts feel. It's even what our words say. One pastor and commentator that I read this past week said that that idea of insult... Perhaps is a little bit common or more, it could translate loosely in today's world as getting the middle finger if you're driving down the highway. Something to that effect. And Jesus is saying, look, if you give the middle finger, you're liable for that. Because it's no longer just the question of did I take their lives. It's a question of attitude. It's a question of even words. And he continues and he takes this a step further and says whoever says you fool will be liable to hell and the word fool there is actually it's it's the greek word morose it's where we get our word moron from and so we can, can kind of understand those a little bit more closely because there's a, a little bit more of a way that that gets translated here. And again, I don't think Jesus is saying and giving us a specific word not to use, although it's probably wisdom in not using that word, moron, and tossing it around carelessly. The idea is what we say to people, and how we value people, and what type of speech comes out of our mouths. Jesus himself will use that word, fool, in speaking with the Pharisees, where he will say, You fools. So he himself will use that word, and as we've established before, doesn't sin by doing so. And it's not as if he got a pass. No, as his actions weren't sinful. And so the idea here is not just stay away from ever using the word moron, it's no, take inventory of your heart. What would be going on inside of you that would well up within you and lead you to want to say you're a moron? Well, the work there. What's going on? Paul in Ephesians 4 said this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up and fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who... Who hear. So does my speech. Strengthen somebody. Does it build them up. Is it timely. Does it fit the occasion. And is it gracious. I think that's. The set of questions we need to be thinking about. And wrestling with. Not did I did I say the word fool or not. I, I don't think the idea here. Is to give us another list to follow. It's to take. It's to target and tackle our hearts and what's going on the inside. So, is my speech timely? Is it gracious? Does it build up? We can see throughout the scriptures where there are times where hard things are said, but they're said graciously, they're said in a way that fits the occasion. And they're said for the purpose of building up, not tearing down. That's what's going on here. That's what Jesus is speaking about in regards to what is going on with our heart and our attitude. The question no longer is, did I not take somebody's life? The question is, do I have anger in my heart? Am I insulting that person? And is my speech towards them, does it build them up, is it timely, is it gracious? Those get after things that happen at the heart level. Well, Jesus continues in verses 23 and 24 and he is going to get after then what we do if we have done something. And he begins to now give instructions of what it looks like if something has been done, if an offense has been committed. And again, the big idea is that God's far more concerned with our interpersonal relationships than we realize. The question's not just, did I not murder somebody? And so if we find that, you know what, we might have some trouble interpersonally. We might have done something that offended somebody, even if it's unintentional. There's some instructions now for how we approach that and how we seek to handle and address that. And in verse 23 he says, So, or therefore, or in summary, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So the instructions that Jesus gives are quite astounding if you think about it. If you have traveled all the way to the Jerusalem to come to the temple and you're there before the altar to bring your goat. And you realize that your brother back home, however many miles away, and you have something between you, leave the goat Go take the journey back home. Reconcile with your brother. Then come back and pick up the goat and take care of business. That's what he's saying here. See there's a radical intensity that is happening here. As Jesus begins to now show what it looks like to follow him. And this goes in hand in hand with what we are seeing. Where he is deeply concerned with our interpersonal relationships. So much so that our quote-unquote worship should have the pause button hit until our relationships with our brothers or sisters have been reconciled. Then we come back. That's radical. That's radical for today. And for today, because worship doesn't just happen at a location. It happens all the time. There's even a whole nother notch that this takes. That your morning devotions should have the pause button hit if you have brothers or sisters that you have offended and there's reconciliation that's needed. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now I don't think he's saying, and I don't want to over-apply that to where we're not going to pray at all or we're not going to read the scriptures at all until that gets cared for. I think he's making a point to show us how intense we need to think of and how purposefully we need to pursue reconciliation with those we may have offended. It matters. Our interpersonal relationships matter. The question's no longer, did I not kill them? The question now is, am I reconciled to them? And when we have done something... We take radical steps to go and pursue reconciliation. Lastly, in verses 25 and 26, Jesus gives some instructions in regards to a debt that is owed. Come to terms, verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penalty. Now, the prison in play here would have been more than likely what's called debtor's prison. And it would be, a, it'd be like a work camp where you would work and you would be able to earn and then pay back the debt that you owe. And that's what's happening here. There's some type of debt. And Jesus is saying, look, Your interpersonal relationships matter. Come to terms with your accuser. And I think the idea of debt here is the idea of something that has not been paid back on time as it was either promised. Or the terms of the contract or the arrangement have somehow either been broken or they've been lapsed, and someone is owed something, and the other person is saying, Well, I'm not going to pay what I told you I would pay. And so there's a debt that's owed. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court because these relationships matter and there's consequences. You're not going to get out until you've paid every last penny. That word penny there is one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. That's how exact Jesus is saying the repayment process looks. There's consequences. It was interesting and, and quite humorous. A 30-year-old man was taken to court by his parents this past week. Some of you may have seen the article. He has refused to move out of his parents' basement. And so his parents sued him to kick him out of the house and get his broken-down Volkswagen out of their driveway. And the judge told the man... Get your car out of the driveway and get out of your parents' basement. So he's he's under court order now to evict out of his parents' house. And I think it's just one of the ways that we can see these verses at play in today's day. And this man and his parents should have come to terms before and This man was unwilling to do so. And I read the article, and they had given him lots of different points of notice along the way, and here's, here's 90 days, here's whatever. I mean, the guy's 30. He should have been out a long time ago, quite frankly. But they were, in my opinion, over and above gracious to him in how to care for this, and he's just refusing steadfastly to get out of mom and dad's house and get his rusty old Volkswagen out of the driveway. And now a, a judge has engaged and here's the thing if he doesn't obey now the judge's verdict there's now consequences to that there's some serious consequences to that now the really funny part is after they were all done they just all went back home which was the same house like he went back into the basement Perhaps started packing his stuff. I don't know what he did. He, given what he's done, probably not a whole lot. That's the idea here. Interpersonal relationships matter. I mean, just what's this guy's relationship with like his parents at this point? It's pretty broken. And it's going to take some time for that to get restored. I think that's part of the big idea here. God's far more concerned with our interpersonal relationships than I think we realize. And the question isn't just, did I kill them or not? The question actually begins first with, did I want to kill them? Did I maybe speak to them in in, in an inappropriate way? And then it moves into, well, have I done something to offend them? Because I need to go take the initiative To restore that relationship. If I have. And if there's debts that I owe. I need to take the initiative. To seek an agreement. And to be good on my word. Because how we live. And interact with each other. Matters. Greatly. It's not just a question. Of what we do with our hands. It's a question of where. Is our hearts. So how are your interpersonal relationships? You may not have killed anybody this week. But were you angry with anybody? Have you offended anybody? Is there anybody you need to go. Seek reconciliation with. And try to take the initiative to pursue that. This coming week. See, Jesus is deepening what would have been the common understanding of obedience to God. And he's doing it in a tremendous way. And he's not just deepening the common understanding from the first century perspective. I think he's doing it for us as well. Because we probably can generally agree that not killing somebody is a really good thing. But what about our words? What about what our hearts think and feel? So, Do you have somebody you need to talk to this week? A letter you may need to write, a phone call you need to perhaps make? The issue is not just what we do with our hands. The issue is where is our hearts? And Jesus is simultaneously raising the bar. But very clearly saying, you're never going to reach it. And it takes us back to the cross. See, our hope is not built on our ability to never have offended somebody. Or to never have been angry. That's not where our hope lies. Our hope lies in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And trusting in Him. And so while He calls us to radical obedience He calls us to feel differently not just do differently but feel differently while He calls that out of us we don't place our hope and trust in that. Our hope and trust is in Him. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's And that alone is what we trust in. And as those who trust in him, we begin to radically pursue obedience to him. And he's gracious in raising the bar and reminding us time and time again, you're never going to meet it because it leads us back to the cross. You pray with me. God, I pray that where there are relationships that need reconciliation this week, that those conversations would happen. God, I pray that you would continue helping us unpack and understand what it looks like to follow you in this radical call to obedience, that you outline. God help us to not be content with just what our hands do but be those who want to offer all of who we are as our spiritual act of worship and have our minds transformed by by the renewing that comes from and through your word. God help us to desire to be more like Christ. And we pray this in his good name. Amen.